Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 28. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on June 30th, 2021, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Congratulations on making it through the first half of 2021. The title of today's episode is Pedro Menendez, The Founding of St. Augustine, and The Slaughter of the Huguenots, The Other Side of the Story. If you listened to last week's episode, which it would behoove you to do before you listen to this one, you're probably thinking, wait, how could there be another side to that story? That would be a fair question. In this episode, which is longer than I prefer, we take a look at the Spanish account of those ugly days in September 1565, layered like a fine lasagna with commentary and perhaps a little snark. Even when one is speaking of Florida in the mid-1500s, there is still new history. One of the known chroniclers of the conquest of Florida by Pedro Menendez de Aviles was written by his son-in-law, Gonzalo Solis de Maras. Unfortunately, historians had to rely on highly damaged excerpts. No complete and legible version had been found, and the only surviving copy was missing big sections. Until 2012, that is, when David Arbesu, professor of Spanish at the University of South Florida, found a complete and readable copy in the private archive of the Marques de Ferreira. Professor Arbesu helpfully translated the Solis Chronicle and published it in 2017. Now, Solis did not criticize his own father-in-law in his chronicle. It is, to some extent, hagiographic. As you will see, that is what makes it so interesting. Last week, we looked at the French Protestant settlement at Charles Fort in 1562 on Paris Island, South Carolina, and the much more substantial effort at Fort Caroline in 1564, which was near the coast just east of Jacksonville, Florida. Charles Fort failed on its own when Jean Ribot, the Huguenot leader, got tossed in the Tower of London on charges of spying and was thereby late to relieve his garrison. The Spanish nevertheless destroyed it and built their own fort on top of it. Then in September 1565, Pedro Menendez, the Adelantado, that being the Spanish word for governor, which I will use henceforth, of Florida, took several hundred men to the region, founded St. Augustine, and captured Fort Caroline. Menendez killed a lot of French people, both in combat and by execution. Not only is St. Augustine the oldest continuously occupied town in today's United States, but that was the first fighting between European powers in today's United States. And as you will see, it was very much an extension of the European wars of religion. Pedro Menendez de Aviles, eventually the governor of Cuba and Florida, matters because he cracked the code of Florida for the Spanish. Until Menendez, every attempt by the Spanish to establish a permanent settlement or even a mere naval base in Florida had failed. The expeditions of Ponce, Ayon, Narvaez, Soto, Cancer, and Luna had all ended disastrously, and only Luna survived the experience. Professor Arbesu summarizes the importance of Menendez as follows. 
Menendez exploits in Florida from 1565 to 1567, most notably the expulsion of the French Huguenots, made the Asturian soldier famous at home and infamous abroad, and paved the way for Spanish control over the present states of Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Carolina, and part of Texas, a long Spanish period that apart from a 21-year interregnum, came to an end only with the transfer of Florida to the United States in 1821. Pedro Menendez was born in the town of Avilas on Spain's northern coast on February 15, 1519. The Menendez family was in the seafaring tradition, and so it was that Pedro spent most of his life at sea. According to his chronicling son-in-law, when Menendez returned to Avilas in 1567, after his adventures in Florida, he had been home only four times for a total of three weeks in the previous 18 years. The Menendez family was of some local stature, but it was not wealthy, or at least not wealthy enough to provide comfortably for the 20 children when the parents died, when Pedro was roughly 13. He blew town, joining one of the Spanish ships charged with fighting the French corsairs who were gunning for Spanish merchants in the Bay of Biscay. A quote from Professor Arbesu, who gives a good summary of Menendez's career before St. Augustine. Once Menendez began his life at sea, he was very successful. The fleet in which the young man enlisted to pursue the corsairs must have been the fleet of the famous Alvaro de Bazan, dispatched by the king in 1543. Bazan is credited in the Solis Chronicle with having provided Menendez with two galleys and two galleots for his expedition to Florida in 1565. Upon his return to Spain around 1545, that would be age 26, Menendez bought a small, shallow draft ship suitable for coastal work. It became a privateer, capturing three French vessels off the coast of Vigo, Spain. His exploits at sea secured him two royal commissions to pursue corsairs. The king instructed Menendez to capture the famous pirate Juan Alfonso Portuguese, whom Menendez killed off La Rochelle, France, and then the pirate's own son, Antonio Alfonso, who suffered the same fate for he was later killed by Menendez in Santa Cruz de Tenerife. In 1550, Menendez was allowed to travel to the Indies in order to strike at the French and English corsairs in those waters. And for this purpose, he bought two galleons. When Menendez returned from the Indies in 1551, war broke out again between France and Spain. For Menendez, war with France meant that the seas were filled with French pirate ships, during his second voyage to the Indies in 1552, his vessel was overtaken by a French galleon, and he was held prisoner for 15 days. He managed to pay his ransom, pay attention to that little fact, and continue his voyage to New Spain and Cuba. There he observed firsthand the threat that French privateers posed to the Spanish Empire, and he came up with a strategy to counterattack. That strategy involved building a series of forts and using them as bases for counterattacks along the Atlantic coast of the United States, which sat astride the fastest route from the New World back to Spain. Regardless, Menendez's accomplishments at sea were such that in 1554, 
He was chosen as one of the captains to guide Prince Philip, the future King Philip II, safely to England for his wedding to Bloody Mary I. Philip became King of Spain two years later and would go on to be the most powerful European of his age. But he still had to do what his dad told him, and that meant marrying a foreign woman 11 years older and who was, shall we say, no Scarlett Johansson. In 1555, just as Menendez was preparing to depart from Seville for the Indies, somebody sent the royal inspectors from the House of Trade to look at Menendez's ships and logs. He and one of his apparently numerous brothers were busted for bringing in half a million ducats worth of red dye and sugar outside of legal registry, meaning they were charged with defrauding the crown. The customs officials tossed Menendez in the clink for 20 months, notwithstanding his apparent favor with Philip II. Eventually, however, Menendez and his brother were acquitted, and in 1557, Philip named Menendez Captain General of the Fleet in Flanders, where Spain was more or less constantly fighting to put down the Flemish. He was assigned to transport more than a million ducats to pay the Spanish soldiers in the Low Countries. Unpaid soldiers being one of the worst things that can happen to a war effort, Menendez's successful completion of the mission through risky waters and time of war was no mean feat, and earned him a knighthood and other honors. All of this meant that in early 1565, when the French Protestants were squatting on land Spain had claimed on the American coast, Menendez was the obvious choice to root them out. So now let's get to the other side of the story, for which I will liberally quote fair use excerpts from David Arbace's translation of the Solis manuscript. Spain, which had become the most powerful country in Europe as a result of its near-monopoly control of the Western Hemisphere and its riches, was overextending itself in Europe. They were endlessly suppressing the revolts in the Low Countries, fighting wars in Italy, contending with France in both cold and hot war, worried about the rising apostasy of Protestantism in Northern Europe, especially in England, Spain's nominal ally, and doing their bit to contain the Ottoman Turks. That's all expensive, even with all that gold and silver and sugar and tobacco. In the spring of 1565, the Turks were pressing on Malta, and Philip II was worried that he didn't have enough ships for the Mediterranean. After hearing Menendez describe his strategy in Florida, however, he authorized four warships and 500 men for the expedition against the Protestants in Florida and appointed Menendez governor of that fair place. Menendez was to supply another 10 ships, mostly shallow draft shallops and such for coastal work. And on June 29, 1565, 466 years ago to the day as I wrote this, set sail from Cadiz, Spain, to Cuba. About a month along, not far from the Caribbean, guess what happened? Here's Solis. Within 30 days of his departure, he was hit by a great storm called a hurricane and was in great danger of being sunk with all his fleet having lost all masts, sails, and rigging of the galleon in which he traveled. When all was calm, again he found himself with only three ships, and since he had much spare sailcloth and rigging, he remedied the situation as best he could and landed in Puerto Rico, where with great diligence he got fitted out again within a week and left, 
having collected another of his ships that had gone astray in the storm. From Puerto Rico, he took another one, making five ships in all, with 1,000 soldiers and sailors, and announced to his men that he was going straight to Havana. Mid-route, Menendez changed his mind. He became worried that if he did not go to Florida quickly, he would be delayed until spring and the French would have time to build up their position. The weather was fair, and though he did not have the cavalry from Cuba, he nevertheless had a big army and had decided that speed and surprise were more valuable than more soldiers. Menendez called his captains together and told them what he wanted to do, but he did not order them. Rather, he made his points and then repaired to prey on the matter himself, saying he would return to discuss the matter. Now from Solis. Addressing and talking over this matter for an hour, they resolved to follow the governor's determination and go straight to Florida to the French harbor. When they left the cabin and the decision was announced in the galleon with her 604 men and the other ships which sailed together all around her with a fair wind, the governor ordered the decision to be celebrated as if he already had the victories that our Lord was to grant him on the appointed day. He ordered the men to play all the fleet's trumpets, fifes, and drums, and to deploy on all the ships the banners, pennants, and campaign flags that he had brought for this enterprise, and to hoist the royal standard, giving it a royal salute by firing all the arquebuses and artillery on the ships. He ordered that all the men should get double rations that day, which gave the greatest of pleasure. This was seen very clearly in the happiness and rejoicing of all the men, who talked of nothing except to praise the governor's decision. On the evening of that day, the governor gave orders that all the weapons in the ships be given to the captains so they could distribute them among their soldiers, who were to keep them clean and ready. Since most of the soldiers were raw recruits, each of them was to shoot three rounds every day until they arrived in Florida in order to lose their fear of the arquebuses and be properly trained. Each round was to be shot with bullets into a target erected in the said galleon with prizes awarded to the soldiers and the companies that did best and to their captains so they would take great care to make them skilled. With this daily drill, they also recited the catechism and the litanies, praying to our Lord and beseeching him to give them victory in everything. They sailed until August 28, 1565, St. Augustine's Day, when they sighted the land of Florida. Falling on their knees and reciting the Diem Lendimus, they all praised our Lord, continuing their prayers and beseeching our Lord to make them victorious in all their endeavors. Now, at one level, you know the story from here, at least if you listen to last week's episode. The Spanish went on to capture Fort Caroline and over the next few weeks hunted down the French and killed in combat or executed at least 471 of them. So how did the Spanish, through the adoring eyes of Menendez's son-in-law, report all of this? Let's start with a capture of Fort Caroline. Late in the day on September 4, 1565, the Spanish fleet came across the French ships the first time, and Menendez hailed them. Here's Solis's recount of the dialogue. Gentlemen, where is this fleet from? One of them said it was from France. He went on to say, what is it doing here? They replied, 
We bring infantry, artillery, and supplies for a fort which the king of France has in this land and for others that he has yet to build. The governor said to them, Are you Catholics or Lutherans, and who is your general? They replied that they were all Lutherans of the new religion. The Huguenots were in fact Calvinists, but apparently to the Spanish, all Protestants were Lutherans. And their general was Jean Ribot. Then they asked the Spaniards who they were, and who was the man asking them questions, whose fleet that was, why it had come to that land, and who was its general. The governor replied, He who asked this of you is called Pedro Menendez. This fleet belongs to the king of Spain, and I am its general. I have come here to hang and behead all the Lutherans I may find on this land and sea. These are the instructions I have from my king." which I will fulfill when the day comes, for I will board your ships, and if I find any Catholics, I will treat them kindly. Many replied at once with various insults and abusive words against our lord the king, calling him by name and against the governor, saying, Let this and that be for King Philip and for Pedro Menendez, and if you are a brave man, as they say you are, come now and do not wait until tomorrow. No mention of what this or that may have been. At this point, the governor had suffered enough indignity from these French, quote, Lutherans, so he ordered the attack. According to Solis, the lily-livered French, seeing this, fled in all directions. The Spanish gave chase, but as we know, the French outran them. This, Solis attributes to missing bits and pieces from the Spanish rigging on account of the hurricane damage. Eventually, Menendez turned back to the site of St. Augustine, arriving there on September 7th. Concerned that the French fleet would reconsolidate and attack, he unloaded the soldiers and as many of the supplies as he could. On the morning of the third day, apparently September 10th, the regrouped French fleet appeared offshore, just a quarter of a league away. The French waited for high tide, whereupon they would close with their big guns covering three shallow draft shallops filled with soldiers. Now Solis tells us what happened from the Spanish point of view. Two hours after the enemy began waiting for high tide, God performed a miracle. Even though the weather was calm and clear, all of a sudden the sea became very rough, and from the north came a strong wind that was contrary to what the French needed to go back to their harbor and fort. Indeed, so mighty was this divine wind that the French ships were swept down the coast. Menendez ordered a mass to be held in honor of the Holy Spirit, which all were to attend, and then called his captains together in a council. When they were together, he said, quote, Gentlemen and brothers, we have a great, difficult, and dangerous task on our shoulders. And if it were only for our Lord the King, I would not be surprised if some of us grew weary and committed the weak acts of cowards, not being able to endure as many hardships as we have ahead of us. But since this burden we carry is the enterprise of our Lord God... For me and the Lord, we've got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. Let that person among us who shows weakness and does not encourage the officers and soldiers under his command be accursed, for this is of great importance to us. Thus, gentlemen, I beg you of your goodness as earnestly as I can 
to consider that, since in this we serve God and our King, the prize of heaven will not be denied us, and we should not worry about the few supplies we have or about being isolated in this land. I ask of you, of your goodness, that we all take courage and try to endure these hardships with patience. They all replied very appropriately, agreeing individually and collectively that for their part, they would do their best. Having thanked them for their good responses, the governor said, Gentlemen, it occurs to me to tell you about a very good opportunity that I can clearly perceive in my senses and my soul. We should not waste it. We should take advantage of it and not let it pass by. I think, and it is common sense to think so, that since the French fleet fled from me four days ago and has now come back to chase me, they must have reinforced themselves with part of the garrison that they had in their fort the best part and the best captains. The wind is most unfavorable for them to return to their fort and harbor, and it seems that this wind will last for many days. We need to remember that Solis wrote this section, and indeed the entire chronicle, after the fact. This seems like an almost brilliant basis for Menendez to have made the decision that he made. Since it worked out, there was no reason for his son-in-law not to construct the rationale, or at least the speech, to make Menendez look prescient rather than lucky. Menendez might as easily have concluded that his own attack on Fort Caroline by sea would fail because he would have faced the same winds as Ribot, and that an overland attack was therefore the only possible course of action. Or maybe Menendez really did think it through this way. There's no way to know. Solis, channeling some real or imagined version of Menendez, continues. These men are Lutherans, something we knew before departing from Spain because of the proclamations of General Jean Ribot issued in France when he embarked. That, on pain of death, only men professing the new religion should embark, and that, under the same penalty, they should bring only books belonging to this sect. They themselves assured us of this when our fleet was anchored with theirs outside the harbor, since they said there was not a Catholic among them. For this reason, our war with them and theirs with us has to be one of blood and fire, since they as Lutherans seek to prevent us from spreading the holy gospel in these provinces, and we seek them for being Lutherans, to prevent them from spreading their harmful and hateful sect in this land and teaching it to the Indians." This is slander. This also, again, seems like post hoc justification for all the nastiness that was to follow. As we learned last week, we know there were Catholics with the French. Even though the majority were Protestant, the Catholic king of France had underwritten the expedition. More damning, as we shall see, Salise himself subsequently admits that they found and spared Catholics among the French they had determined to execute otherwise. Or maybe Menendez was worried about the weak acts of cowards, so he was stiffening the resolve of his own men by saying essentially, you do not have to figure out that the people you will soon be killing are apostates. I have done that work already and can assure you they are not Catholic. In any case, Menendez persuaded his captains to support an attack over land. Four or five hundred of his men, there's some disagreement in the historical record, marched north through the swampy and dense forest and on September 19th reached the bluff above Fort Caroline. 
that they spent the night and, as reported last week, suffered through a torrential downpour that soaked their powder and demoralized the men, including some of the captains. Not surprisingly, Solis doesn't say whether the severe rain was as equally divine as the wind that pushed the French fleet far to the south. Menendez again rallied his men through fine words along the lines of those already quoted, and at dawn of the next morning led the attack on Fort Caroline. They caught the French completely by surprise, killing several outside the fort's gate. Their screams motivated the gatekeeper to open the main gate, presumably so that they could rescue survivors. And the Spanish poured in. Here's how Solis described it. Then the brigadier encountered two Frenchmen in their nightshirts. He killed one of them, and the other was killed by Captain Andres Lopez Patino, who was behind him. He ran on, and when he arrived near the fort, the people outside were screaming. They had seen the two Frenchmen get killed. The postern of the main gate opened. The brigadier closed in and killed the man who had opened the gate. He slipped inside, and after him came all those who had run the fastest. Since they could not close the door, they opened it. When they were inside, they found many Frenchmen coming out of their houses in their nightshirts and others fully clothed, trying to find out what had happened. These were killed at once. Others retreated and jumped from the walls. The French were disheartened, and all our men came at once through the gate, which had been opened wide for them, going into the French barracks and leaving no one alive. The governor waited until half the men had gone inside and told the captain of his guard, Francisco de Castaneda, to remain where he was, crying out victory until the rear guard arrived because he himself had to catch up with a vanguard and get into the fray. The captain did so, and the governor ran with the utmost speed and arrived at the fort, where our soldiers were killing the French. Then, running from one place to another, he said in a loud voice that on pain of death, no one should harm or kill any woman or any child under 15 years of age. This being so, 70 people were saved, but all the rest were killed except 50 or 60 who jumped from the walls and took refuge in the woods from which the governor had come. Friendly observation. This attack had been planned for days, including at length the night before. The belated order to spare the women and children seems, at its least offensive, to have occurred to Menendez after thinking, this would seem really bad if word got out, and I really can't trust my men not to talk about this when they get to drinking in the taverns back in Havana. Or maybe he didn't know there were women and children in the fort until he got there. That seems less likely to me. The Spanish captured and secured all the French supplies, including the cannon at the fort and barrels of dry powder. Three small French ships were anchored offshore, where they had collected some of the people fleeing the fort, including René Laudonniere, who was one of those who had climbed over the wall. Menendez sent one of the captured Frenchmen out to the ships with a message— they told the Frenchmen to inform the man in charge of the ships that they could take any ship they wanted of the three and with God's help go to France safely, be treated well wherever they went. If they chose not to do this, he would sink them and have them beheaded and hanged without leaving anyone alive. The boat came ashore and the Frenchman went back in it with his message. The captain of the three ships was Jacques Ribot, son of Jean, and he replied that he was bound to fight if the governor meant to wage war against him. 
Menendez rolled out one of the French cannon and in a single shot hit the closest ship just at the waterline, ensuring that in due time, and not too much due time, it would sink. The French used their ship's boats to rescue the people on board and withdrew the other two ships out of cannon range. Menendez secured Fort Caroline and renamed it Fort San Mateo since it was conquered on St. Matthew's Day. He appointed a garrison, arranged to have the French survivors shipped to Havana and thence to Spain so they could be properly instructed as Catholics, and marched to St. Augustine to defend the position there in the event that Ribot made it back up the coast. Menendez did not, at that point, know that Ribot's fleet had wrecked on the coast about 50 miles south of St. Augustine. The French crews survived, and they were moving north to Fort Caroline, which they did not know had been destroyed. The march south was extremely arduous. Menendez and his men got lost and kept walking into swampy cul-de-sacs from which they would have to backtrack. Eventually, Menendez selected a tree-climbing man to scoot up a tall tree and scout around. Like Bilbo atop the canopy of Mirkwood Forest, that's a literary reference, y'all, he saw nothing. After much backing and filling, they eventually got back to St. Augustine, which was basically a base camp on September 27, 1565. On September 28, friendly Indians reported that, quote, many Christians were about 12 miles away, struggling to cross a river on their march north. Menendez took 40 men with him and marched south to see what was up. They reached the north bank of the river at night, camped quietly, and at morning, Menendez climbed a tree to see what was happening. Now let's go to a long excerpt from Solis, whose account, we should remember, is trying to make Menendez look good. Quote, On the other side of the river, he saw two flags and many people, and in order to prevent them from crossing, he came close enough for them to be able to count his men, so he would think there were many more. Once they were spotted, a man swam across the river. He was French, and he said that the people were all French, that they had been shipwrecked in a storm, and that they had all escaped. The governor asked him who the French were. He said there were 600 captains and people of Jean Ribot, the king of France's viceroy and captain general of that land. He asked if they were Catholics or Lutherans. The man said they were all Lutherans of the new religion, although the governor already knew this, for they had said so when he encountered their fleet, and so had the women and children whose lives he spared when he conquered the fort. And he had found six coffers filled with bound and gold-tooled books, all pertaining to the new religion, which he had burned, sparing none, and he knew that they did not say mass, and that their Lutheran sect was preached to them every morning." The governor asked him why they'd come there. He said that their captain had sent them to see who they were. The governor asked him if he wanted to return. He replied that he did, but he also wanted to know who they were. This man spoke Spanish very clearly. Then the governor asked him to tell his captain that he was Philip II's viceroy and captain general of that land, that his name was Pedro Menendez, that he was there with some soldiers to find out who they were because the day before they had had news that they were there, and that he was now just arriving. The Frenchman left with a message and later came back, asking that they give a safe conduct for his captain and four other gentlemen who wanted to meet with him. 
and loan them a boat that the governor had there, which had come down the river with supplies. The governor asked this Frenchman to tell his captain that he could come safely on his word. Then he sent for them with a boat, and they came. The governor received them very well with about ten of his men and ordered the rest to stay back among the bushes where they could all be seen, so the French would think there were more men. One of the Frenchmen said he was the captain of these people, that four galleons and several shallops belonging to the king of France had been shipwrecked in a storm twenty leagues from one another, that they were the people from one of those ships, and that they wanted the governor to help them by letting them use that boat to cross the inlet, as well as another one located four leagues away, which was that of St. Augustine. As they wished to go to a fort, they had twenty leagues northwards from there. The governor asked him whether they were Catholics or Lutherans. He said they were all of the new religion. Then the governor said, Gentlemen, your fort has been captured and its people killed with the exception of the women and the children under 15 years of age. In order for you to be certain of this, among some of the soldiers here, there are many things from that fort and two Frenchmen whom I brought with me because they claimed to be Catholics. Be seated here and eat, for I shall send you the two Frenchmen and the things the soldiers have taken from the fort in order for you to be convinced." The governor did this, ordering his men to feed them and sending them the two Frenchmen and many things the soldiers had taken from the fort so that they could see them, and then withdrew to eat with his men. An hour later, when he saw that the Frenchmen had eaten, he went to where they were, asking them if they were convinced of what he had said to them. They said that they were, and they asked that he kindly give them ships and provisions with which they could go to France. The governor replied that he would gladly comply if they were Catholics and if he had ships to spare, but he did not have them. The French captain asked the governor to spare their lives and allow them to stay with him until there might be ships bound for France, for the kings of Spain and France were friends and brothers, and there was no war between them. The governor replied that this was true and that he would help Catholics and friends, for he believed he would be serving both kings in this. However, since they belonged to the new religion, he considered them enemies. He had a war of blood and fire with them, and he would wage it with all cruelty against those he found on that sea or land where he was viceroy and captain general for his king." He had come to implant the holy gospel in that land so that the Indians might be enlightened and live in the knowledge of the holy Catholic faith of Jesus Christ, our Lord, as preached and practiced by the Church of Rome. And if they chose to surrender their weapons and flags, placing themselves at his mercy, so he might do with them as God wished, they could do so. Otherwise, they should do as they pleased, for he would not come to any other agreement with them. Even though the French captain protested, he could not make the governor agree to anything else. He went back to his men in the boat in which he had come, saying he was going to tell them what had happened and decide what they must do, and he would return within two hours with an answer. The governor told him that they should do as they thought best, and that he would wait. Two hours later, the same French captain returned with the same men as before, and he told the governor that there were many noblemen there who would give him 50,000 ducats if he spared all their lives. The governor replied that, even as he was a poor soldier, 
He did not want to do such a weak thing so as not to be branded as greedy, that whenever he chose to be liberal and merciful, he would be so without self-interest. The French captain persisted, but the governor disabused him. Even if the earth were to join with the heavens, he would not do anything other than what he told him. So the French captain returned to where his men were, telling the governor that he would return with whatever decision they made. Half an hour later, he came back, and he had put in the boat all the flags, some 60 arquebuses, 20 pistols, a quantity of swords and bucklers, and some helmets and breastplates. He came to where the governor was and said that all those Frenchmen gave themselves up to his mercy, and he surrendered the flags and weapons. Then the governor ordered 20 of his soldiers to get into the boat and bring back the French in groups of 10. The river was narrow and easy to cross. He ordered the admiral of the fleet to receive the flags and weapons and to be diligent in bringing the French in the boat, saying that the soldiers should not mistreat them. The governor withdrew from the shore to behind a sand dune at a distance of two arquebus shots, where he could see the people bringing the Frenchmen across in the boat. Then he said to the French captain and to another eight Frenchmen who were with him, Gentlemen, I have but a few inexperienced soldiers, and there are many of you. Walking unbound, it would be easy for you to take revenge on us for the people we killed when we captured the fort. Therefore, it is necessary that you march with your hands tied behind your back to my camp, eight leagues north from here. The French agreed to this, and their hands were tied securely behind their backs with the soldiers' fuse cords. The ten men coming in the boat could not see the others whose hands were tied until they were close to them. It was best to proceed in this manner, so that the Frenchmen who had not yet crossed the river would not see this and become alarmed. So they tied up 208 French soldiers in this way. The governor asked if any among them were Catholics who wanted to make confession. Eight of them said they were. He took them out of there and placed them in the boat to be taken by the river to St. Augustine. The others replied that they belonged to the new religion, that they considered themselves to be very good Christians, and that they had no other creed but this one. When each group of ten men arrived, the governor gave them food and drink before tying them up, which was done before the next ten arrived. Then he ordered them to march. He told one of his captains to march with them in the vanguard until they came to a sandy stretch at a distance of a crossbow shot that they needed to cross in order to go to the port of St. Augustine. There he would find a line that the governor would draw with a short lance he carried in his hand, where he should kill them all. He ordered the one in the rear guard to do the same, and it was done like this, leaving all the French dead. He got back to St. Augustine that night toward dawn, for the sun had already set when those men died. Remember that this was written by somebody who wanted Menendez to look like a good guy. A couple of weeks later, in mid-October, Menendez got wind of another group of Frenchmen marching up the coast, stalled at the same inlet. Menendez ran essentially the same play, offering the choice of war or surrender at his mercy in accordance with God's wishes, without explaining that God's wishes involved mass murder. This group included Jean Ribot himself, who conducted the negotiations with Menendez, along the way offering him a 100,000 ducats of his own, and more than that from the others, 
If only he would let them go. Menendez again refused, claiming that it really grieves me to lose such good ransom and booty, for I have dire need of those monies to help me with a conquest and settlement of this land in the name of my king. But that honor and whatnot precluded him from taking it. Deceived, Rabeau surrendered his men, and Menendez executed them in groups of ten out of sight. When it was Rabeau's turn, Solis reports that he indeed said that another twenty or so years were of little account, and then the knife. Solis's chronicle does not include the heartfelt back and forth with the executioner, just following orders and such, that we recounted last week. In this second group, Menendez spared only 16 people, including four self-identifying Catholics and a dozen musicians. As a devoted listener noted in an email to me, from that day forward, the inlet at which these murders occurred is known as Matanzas Inlet. Matanzas meaning slaughter in the original Spanish. So what to make of all this? The Spanish account does not actually much disagree with the virgins described by accounts favorable to the French Protestants, such as those discussed in the last episode. The difference is that crime becomes heroism, perfidy becomes nobility, and that difference turns on the perceived sincerity of Menendez. Solis emphasizes Menendez's piety, his refusal to accept a ransom, and his invocation of the holy purpose of their mission— to motivate his men to avoid the weak acts of cowards. Since we do not, as a matter of policy in this podcast, apply today's morality to the actions of yesterday, we will not say whether the slaughter of the French was perfidious or noble, even though we moderns would all say it was perfidious. But there were contemporaries who judged Menendez according to the standards of their time. Menendez would become a hero in Spain for having done it, and a villain in France, even among the French Catholics. As we saw last week, the French would return to exact their revenge, killing the garrison at Fort San Mateo, quote, not as Spaniards, but as murderers. The motive for the French retaliation was not geopolitical or commanded by the crown. It was a freelance operation to punish a crime. Perhaps the last question raised by the slaughter of the Huguenots is eternal. Does the sincerity of one's belief or other beliefs ever justify crimes in the service of that faith of those beliefs? Solis and Menendez and everybody else who has ever waged wars of religion or ideology would say yes, as would most of the combatants in Europe's religious wars in the 16th and 17th centuries. So would Paul Pott or Mao when he launched the Cultural Revolution, or other famous tyrants in our lifetimes, or those of our parents. I, for one, believe that sincerity justifies no crime. But that is another barroom argument if we ever do a podcast meetup. Thank you again for listening to this long episode. Please follow us on the History of the Americans podcast Facebook page and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Online reviews and five-star ratings are especially motivating. Finally, you can send me questions, pats on the back, corrections, and eruptions of outrage by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com and comment at the website thehistoryoftheamericans.com. <laughs>